We're going to be back in the book of Exodus today. If you were here last week or two weeks ago, I tried to give you a heads up on that. Hopefully you brought your scripture journal with you if you've been keeping one of these. If you want one and don't have it, you can try to order yours, your own online. I'm pretty sure we bought everybody out, so we have some here. That might be the easiest way for you to get your hands on one uh, today. There should be some in the back at the Connect table. If there are not, I know we'll have more shipped before next Sunday. So this morning we move into part three of the book of Exodus. We'll start in chapter 13, verse 1. And we've sort of capped off what we're calling part three, beginning in verse, excuse me, yeah, verse one of chapter 13, and ending at the conclusion of verse 19. This is the period of time where the Israelites leave Egypt. God begins to give them some law, some rule, some expectations. He's forming their identity. And part three will end when the people arrive back at Mount Sinai, where God initially encountered Moses and sent Moses to Egypt to go and get his people and set them free. And then part four that we'll begin working on in January of 2022 will consist of the law giving that God does at Sinai. We'll get to know the people's hearts. We'll get to experience and walk alongside them as they doubt and fail God, and he sustains them and loves them. But for this period of time, I just want to quickly review for you. Maybe you weren't here for the first two parts of Exodus. We've been in this book the majority of 2021. Part one was what we called uh, You Can Run. That was our subtitle for the first four chapters because that's really the story of Moses. The first four chapters of Exodus are Moses' origin story. Uh, If you read comic books or you watch Marvel movies, I don't really, but most people I know do and can't believe that I don't, uh, you're familiar that every kind of great hero starts in a small place and there's some defining moments that turn into inspiration that kind of become anchor points for them as they work through whatever their destiny, if they're the chosen one or their powers or whatever happen to be. All of that's mythology, but in Moses' life, he has these anchor points like being born in a time when Pharaoh wanted to kill all the babies, but surviving that, that's an anchor point for him. Being raised in the Pharaoh's house by the Pharaoh's daughter, that's an anchor point in his life. Murdering a man and fleeing into the desert and then coming back when God told him to come back, all of those are anchor points for him. And so part one, you can run, is the origin story of Moses. It's where we get to know him and we familiarize ourselves with the oppression and the slavery that the Pharaoh represented in the life of God's people. The climax of part one is Moses' encounter with God at Mount Sinai the bush that burns but is not consumed, where God tells Moses God's name for the very first time. He's not just Elohim, but he says, I'm Yahweh. That's my first name, my personal name that I didn't even share with Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, but I'm sharing it with you so that you can go and tell my people I'm personal. I've heard their suffering and I will help them. Part two of Exodus, we called God versus Pharaoh. It was chapters five through 12. We finished that at the end of the month of August, so it's just been a few weeks since we finished our time there. And it consists primarily of the 10 plagues. There's a little bit at the beginning where Moses makes his way back to Egypt, but then he and his brother Aaron immediately confront the Pharaoh and continue to confront the Pharaoh, I think about 17 different times across those 10 plagues, calling the Pharaoh to repent, to let God's people go, to go out into the wilderness to worship God. And again and again, the Pharaoh says no. There's a very important verse at the, at the kind of early part of these chapters, at the end of part one in chapter four, verse 22, where God says to Moses, I want you to tell the Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn. They are my firstborn child among all of humanity, and therefore, Pharaoh, if you will not let them go, I will take from you, Pharaoh, your firstborn as recompense, as reconciliation for your inability to obey me, to submit to me. So that's what happens at the end of the 10th plague. God gives his people a way to pass through the 10th plague, which is a plague of death, and to do that by way of supplication, the blood of a lamb. And God's people who are obedient, who choose to have faith that that's going to be sufficient for them, they do. They make it through this experience of death, the night of the Passover. The angel of death passes over the houses that are marked by lamb's blood, not because God is allergic to lamb's blood, but because that represents the faith of the people. 
So that brings us to the end of chapter 12. God has finally set his people free. The Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron into his uh, throne room one final time and says, get out, go and never come back. Run, I don't want to see you again. And all the people of Egypt likewise tell the people of Israel, go, go now, leave quickly. And so the people have their, their mixing bowls tied up in their clothes to their chests. They have their families all packed up. They're ready to go. They're ready to hit the road. And we arrive then at the beginning of chapter 13 expecting God's people to be pretty thankful, right? Wouldn't you think that? They've seen God flex for these 10 amazing miracles. They're really specific. They're almost hyper-specific to the point that we don't always understand at face value why God would choose to use the plagues that he did. But as we dig in and understand the nature of the gods of Egypt, we realize that Yahweh is dethroning the gods of Egypt, in each of these ten plagues. This is a specific contextual miracle, a series of miracles designed to inspire and communicate to God's people that he's present, that he's powerful, that he's very personal and real, and more important than any of those things, that he loves them. Not just that he loves somebody somewhere on the face of the planet, but he loves Israel, a group of people who probably struggle to even love themselves because their existence has consisted of slavery and oppression and shame for generation after generation. I would expect that Israel would never turn their back on a God like that, right? I mean, what else does God have to do to earn their love and their commitment to him? He set them free. He's brought them out of slavery. He's done all these miracles. I would expect Israel to be worshiping God, ready to receive his law, ready to do everything the way he says to do it because he's already shown himself to be more powerful than the gods of Egypt who were the greatest mythological, theological powers of that day. But Israel ends up being pretty disappointing, if that's our expectation. They almost immediately begin to question whether or not God was really good to bring them out of Egypt. Was the timing right? Was the process right? Do we really trust this Moses guy or not? Is he really who we're supposed to be following? And so for the next seven chapters, verses chapters 13 through 19, I think that the nation of Israel are very relatable to you and I. Maybe you're better than me. Maybe your righteousness is so deep-seated that you never doubt God, but I have lived through a series of experiences. It feels like one about every 18 months of my adult life where I reach a point where I have to decide for myself, am I truly going to put the weight of my life on God's promises or am I going to do what my instincts tell me to do? which is to run and to pull back and to be self-sufficient and to try to white-knuckle and fight my way through whatever it is that's challenging me. The most recent of these challenges in my life has been foster care for my wife and I. For 18 months, we had a young lady in our house who became a part of our family almost overnight. I sensed clearly early on that very likely she would be a part of our family in the long term, but the state didn't acknowledge that right away. The biological situation didn't acknowledge that right away. The tribe didn't acknowledge that right away. The judge, the court, all of these different entities, the guardian ad litem, these people who have authority in my daughter's life, they weren't sure yet. And so we had to wait and we had to follow. And we knew that there was a destination. We felt sure that we knew where God was leading our family, but we still had to wait on God to get us there. Knowing that you're going to arrive somewhere doesn't nullify or disqualify the challenges between where you are and where you're going. And so in the life of Egypt excuse me, in the life of Israel, in the 13th chapter of the book of Exodus, we begin to see the world's first case of what is popularly known as Stockholm Syndrome. In fact, Stockholm Syndrome is such a clear and prevalent theme. The fearful spirit of the Israelite people resisting God and wanting to return to Egypt is such a theme in these seven chapters that it's our subtitle for part three. Part one, you can run. Part two, God versus Pharaoh. Part three, Stockholm Syndrome. If you're unfamiliar, in 1973, a man named Jan-Erik Olsen took four people hostage in Stockholm, Sweden, in one of the largest banks in Sweden. 
And he did that because he failed to rob the bank. His objective was to steal a bunch of money. The police arrived too soon, and so he and his accomplice turned a bank robbery into a hostage situation. They held those hostages in one of the vaults of the bank for six days. They were in negotiation with the police to try to figure out how excuse me, Jan Olsen and his accomplice could get out. They didn't want to kill the hostages, but they kept saying they were willing to do that if that was the only way that, that they could have power over the police. Eventually, they were able to negotiate the release of the hostages, but when that happened, all four of those hostages refused to testify against their captor, Jan. They wouldn't go to court. They would not press charges against him. And in the months after that standoff, two of those ex-hostages tried to crowdfund they basically put together the 1973 version of a GoFundMe to gather money together for the sake of their captors. They were like, well, these guys are in such desperate times, they have to rob a bank. We'll just get everybody else to raise money for them, and, and we'll put together a care package. Is that the way you would expect a person to respond to someone who kept them at gunpoint for six days? No, it's not, even if you're sitting there quietly. I know in your head you're agreeing with me. Okay, I can tell. I can see it in your eyes. The captives insisted that their captors were just misunderstood, that they shouldn't be charged, that there was really nothing to worry about here. And this case, and the study of this case, gave rise to a new category of psychological disorder that's called Stockholm Syndrome, named after Stockholm, where this standoff happened. Stockholm Syndrome has several key components, and we will see these components show up in the life of Israel as they interact with Moses, who is an extension of Yahweh, who is their deliverer, who sets them free, and then they remember Egypt and they remember the Pharaoh who was their captor. Stockholm Syndrome is marked by positive feelings from the captive about the captor. Stockholm Syndrome is marked by the captives refusing to cooperate with their liberators, not being excited to be set free, but resisting and dragging their feet and digging their heels in. And ultimately, in Stockholm Syndrome, the captive believes that the captor is essentially good and just misunderstood by society at large, or that the captive themselves they desire the familiarity of captivity. It's comfortable somehow to them in a way that probably seems unbelievable to you and I, but the familiarity of knowing the rules and understanding what's expected of them from being in captivity is comfortable, it's contained, it's controllable enough that the freedom that they gain outside of that captivity, once they're liberated, the unknowns of personal agency are too much for them. They're overwhelming. And so they begin to tell themselves, what if we had stayed? What if I had never been set free? I know it was hard. I know it was harsh, but maybe things were better then. God knows that Israel still has some positive feelings about the Egyptians. One commentator said it this way. In Exodus 13, the people have gone out of Egypt, but Egypt has not yet gone out of the people. It's a helpful way to process this. They prove themselves. Israel proved themselves to be very uncooperative with Yahweh. They're not easy to lead, they're not easy to liberate to the point that they end up walking in a big loop for about 40 years at one point in this process as a way of discipline for their unfaithfulness and unwillingness to follow God. They somehow believe that their captors in Egypt are good or at least better than Moses and Yahweh to the point that their most consistent message to God will be, we should have never left. They'll say it again and again to themselves, to Moses, and to Yahweh's face. We should have stayed behind, we shouldn't have come. It's Stockholm Syndrome. So in Exodus 13, in preparation for God to move his people out of captivity and into liberation, into freedom, he gives them a couple of standards that I believe are supposed to be solutions or remedies to their Stockholm Syndrome. So let's read and see what God does for his people. This is Exodus 13. We'll read the first two verses, and then we're going to read through verse 10. Your Bible says the Lord. You remember that this is God's name, Yahweh. Yahweh said to Moses, Consecrate or set apart to me all of the firstborn, 
Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So God brings up the concept of consecration. He's going to come back to this in verse 11. So I'm not going to deal with it a lot right now. It really goes better with verses 11 through 16. So let's keep reading in verse 3. God's going to lay out a new feast for his people. To be clear with you, this is not just another name for the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread that God's about to prescribe is different from the Passover, but it happens at the same time, which is confusing for us and was confusing for Israel. God has a purpose behind it. Listen to his words. This is Exodus 13.3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, Yahweh brought you out from this place. Therefore, no leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the land which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, when you get there, you will keep this service in this month. So Moses is saying this is not just something you're going to practice for a little while while you journey into the land of promise. This will be a regular rhythmic ordinance, a thing you will observe even once you arrive at your destination. He goes on to say, seven days you will eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there will be a feast to Yahweh. Verse 7, unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days, no leavened bread shall even be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory, which means if you have leaven in your house, you have to put it all in a jar, clean everything, and carry it all the way to the edge of the land that you live in and dump it out there. It can't even be on the ground outside your home. You have to get it all the way out of your nation. God is using leaven as a representation here to demonstrate to his people that he intends to drive all of the influence of Egypt out of their midst. And they'll be left unleavened. They'll be left unaffected, untainted by the influence of Egypt and her Pharaoh and her gods. That's what God is alluding to, our God. Verse 8. Here comes the testimony portion of this ritual. Moses says, you will tell your son, or you can interpret that as children, on the day that you do this. The reason I do this is because of what Yahweh did. Now, hear how personal this is. For me, when I came out of Egypt. Now, that's interesting because this is something that's going to stand for many generations. So eventually, a hundred years from now, there will be people who weren't actually technically liberated from Egypt. They didn't live that experience. But it will remain part of their identity to personally identify with God's emancipation of his people. If you've never heard it said before, the Exodus is the gospel of the Old Testament. It is the single, unifying, clarifying, identifying movement in God's redemptive history in the Old Testament. And it remains an identity-level issue all the way until Jesus' day. Verse 9, it will be to you as a sign on your hand. It will be to you as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, Yahweh has brought you out of Egypt, and you shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When I read these words in the Old Testament, I hear echoes, or I should say shadows, because this is coming before the New Testament, but I hear hints. I hear foreshadowing of the way that the apostles and Jesus spoke about the new covenant and the new creation under Jesus' blood. The apostle Paul believed that the redeemed church, he says this in the book of Ephesians, you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, that we are the revealed mystery of God, that what God is doing in a way that is hard to understand in the Old Testament, he's making plain to the world and to each of us in the New Testament. So that means that the objective of the things that we read in the Old Testament that are challenging to understand, the objective of those things, the goal that God has, is to teach you and I as human beings about his church. 
fully redeemed, fully reconciled, not just Jewish, but Jewish and Gentile joined together, all peoples, all tribes, all nations, all tongues, the picture that we see in Revelation of heaven, that's only possible if the promises God makes to the Old Testament Jewish people expand and become true for the church in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And if I can, I want to point out to you the similarities. Just try to hear the overlap between the way that Moses has communicated about the, concert, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, a rite and ritual that's meant to demonstrate the loss of the influence of Egypt, the gain of the influence of God. Paul's talking about the same kinds of things in light of Jesus in 2 Corinthians. He says, for the love of Christ controls you and I, or compels, your version may say. Because we've concluded this. This is the conclusion that we've reached. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is the conclusion you have reached. That one has now died for all, and therefore all have died. Like the lambs of Passover who died for God's people. This is the context of this verse. Verse 15, Paul says, And he died, Christ died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but would instead live for him who for their sake died and was also raised. If we're living for Jesus, part of living for Jesus is accepting his rule over our lives. If we accept Jesus' rule, then he gets to tell us what festivals to have. He gets to tell us how to prepare our food. I mean, the minutia of our lives become his business because it's his will, not my will anymore. The Feast of Unleavened Bread only works for the Israelites if the Israelites are not working for themselves. Nobody on the face of the planet has ever willingly chosen unleavened bread over leavened bread. It's not fun. It doesn't feel good. Even your gluten-free friends who have to get cauliflower crust pizza wish that they didn't have to do that. That's what Israel's experiencing here. They would prefer to have nice, big, pillowy bread, but they're not going to do that because it's representative of what God has done for them spiritually. Paul goes on in verse 16, and he says, From now on, therefore, we don't regard anybody according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded even Christ himself according to the flesh, we do that no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What does that mean? It means the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God. God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, who gave to you and I the ministry of reconciliation. That is... That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation is lamb's blood on the doorposts. Reconciliation is a propitiation, a sacrifice between you and God so that you and God can come near to each other. Your sin can be handled. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, and God is making his appeal through us. This is what Moses is getting at in Exodus 13, 8. When he says, when your son asks you, why do you do these things? You will say, God has done for me personally what I could not do for myself. It's the same message. You are an ambassador for God, and he is making his appeal through you. Second half of verse 20. Therefore, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that is the message of the Passover. That is the message of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a message to the world that you are far from God and you may come near but the way that you will come near will be reconciliation on God's terms. He will decide how this works. You will come to him the right way, and then you'll never have to worry. He'll never depart from you. 21, for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God, and therefore we will keep his statutes. We will live how he says to live because he has purchased our life, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, a memorial, a way of life. I hope you can hear the overlap. I think it's significant. I think it's not accidental. The exodus in redemptive history is the world's introduction. It's the very first time God has revealed to the earth 
that he has a large-scale plan to deliver humanity by delivering us from sin. Our transformation is connected to God getting us out from underneath the sway and the hold of sin in our lives. So if you are taking notes this morning, I'm going to have three big ideas overall. I'll give you the first one now, and you can write this down. Jesus, our Savior, reconciles us, you and I, according to the pattern of the Exodus. This isn't a stretch. This isn't a leap. This isn't your pastor trying really hard to make the Old Testament relevant by duct taping it to Jesus' cross. The vision of God bringing his people out of Egypt is something that even Jesus himself will appeal to in the Gospels. He will call upon Jewish people who know these stories and he'll say, those things were good for your forefathers. I can get to your heart. I will fulfill this if you will follow me. I am trustworthy in a way that even these stories are not. By moving our citizenship, you and I, from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life, Jesus' blood is the fully revealed plan of God that he's hinting at, that he's preparing humanity for by commanding the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus 13. Because for Israel, at the point that God has brought them out of Egypt, they are the prototype of a new humanity. They are a nation built from nothing. Seventy people went into Egypt. Four hundred years later, a million and a half leave. Egypt is sort of the surrogate mother of Israel. And in some ways, that will stay true culturally for a long time. As soon as Israel arrives at the mountain of God to meet with him personally and to receive his law, the very first thing they do is make a big golden cow, a cow being the primary idol of Egypt, and they decide to worship it and attribute to it all the things that God did. There is still a lot of Egypt in them that has to be worked out over time. This is our experience as Western Christians. We have to be very aware and careful that the way that we approach God and understand his word does not first pass through our lens of postmodernism, our lens of the American dream, our lens of capitalism, our lens of anything else, but that those things are subject to God's word, that his word is primary and that we know his word well enough that we actually understand what it has to say about these new and modern concepts. Israel is the pattern for the New Testament church, and all of the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament are fulfilled and eventually come to bear on our lives in Jesus. So Israel are now free from slavery and free from death. That's good for them. Their death, symbolized by the deaths of the lambs of Passover, has released them from all of their debts, all of their obligations, their tendencies, their habits, any of the baggage that their old life brought with it. God has passed them through that death into new life. And now they've been adopted into God's family by his grace and mercy. So what's left for them to do? Well, now they have to learn what that means. They have to try to understand how their lives are supposed to look different now that they belong to God. Now that they are not just sons and daughters of Egypt or even sons and daughters of Abraham, the patriarch. Now they are sons and daughters of Yahweh. But what does that mean? I mentioned earlier that my wife and I have been foster parents. I can say that now in the past tense because on Monday... This last Monday, September 20th at 3.30 p.m., we adopted our daughter into our family forever. And we're done. You can clap. Yeah, I think it's awesome too. Thank you. I'm glad we did foster care. We might do it again. We don't know. We're not going to do it tomorrow. We're going to take a little break, okay? But my daughter, her name is different now. Her family is different now. In some ways, her experience is the same, right? You could argue that this is true for Israel, having lived under God's rule. They've seen God for these ten plagues. In some ways, he's probably felt like a foster parent to them. He's around, he's caring for them, but they still have this strong identity-level connection to Egypt. When God delivers them, he breaks that, and he does it in a way that is good for them, even if they are scared of what that means. 
For my daughter, she has to find out what it means to be a Coleman now. And being a Coleman doesn't just mean that she does what her dad says, whose last name has always been Coleman. It means she also has to figure out what it means to be a Prezabella, which is Andy's maiden name. And then my mom's maiden name is Day, so she also has to figure out how being a Day has influenced what it means to be a Coleman. And she has to figure out how being a Kilfoy, which is my wife's mom's maiden name, how has that influenced being a Prezabella, which now influences being a Coleman. Getting to know a family that you weren't born into immediately is a challenge, and it takes time. In our house, being a Coleman means that we open one Christmas present every Sunday between Thanksgiving and Christmas. That sounds pretty good, right? I think it's pretty cool. It means that we pray together before we go to sleep at night, and we pray in the morning before we go to school. We thank God for the day we've had. We offer him each new day when we can. It means that we stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves. Uh, We are a family who is very comfortable with our daughter standing her ground in conflict if it means that she's protecting somebody who can't protect themselves. We are kind to people as long as we possibly can be, even when we don't feel like it. It means we watch college football games in the fall on Saturdays. Even when our daughter is six and doesn't care, we still do it as a family because we care about her discipleship. We use, we do, we use our fireplace 365 days a year. That's the Prezabella influence a little bit there. And we really lean into holiday decorations at our house. We go big. These are things that are distinctives for our family. Now, for my daughter, we have to teach her those things. And we don't just teach her once by writing a book about what it means to be a Coleman and giving it to her and expecting her to just study it and be ready. We demonstrate these things to her. We explain them to her over and over again, far more than we would like to have to explain them to her. We remind her about these things when she forgets. And ultimately, she has to be invited into these experiences so that she doesn't just understand what it means to be a child of Andy and Philip, but she experiences that so that our rule of life as a family can actually shape her as a person who will end up being like us because of our influence. This is a microcosm of the shaping work that Yahweh is doing in Exodus 13 with his people. He's not just commanding that they do these things so they can learn a lesson about him. He's inviting them into experiences. The reason that these things are feasts is because they take time, a lot of time, a lot of planning. You have to give days and hours of your life over to these things Can you imagine if your local church today, if True North Church told you for seven days, none of us are going to eat vegetables and you don't have a choice? There is probably something in 95% of us that would immediately go, you're not going to tell me what to do about my vegetables. You're not the boss of me. You're going to come to my house. You're going to check my Instagram to see if I posted some broccoli. How are you going to know, right? There's a sense of resistance. There's a sense of unwillingness. There's a sense of I am free. I have rights. You don't tell me. But it's important enough to God to demand something that may seem arbitrary because he understands that it's how he welcomes people into his family. He's saying to them, there's going to be meaning attached to this that you don't even understand right now. The next 40 years of the life of you as a nation, as some of you grow old and die and a new generation is born, it's these practices that will slowly but surely work the leaven of Egypt out of you. And you will be people who are only defined by me and by my ways. Yahweh adopts Israel into his family all the way in. He gives them purpose, he gives them life, and then he teaches them how to live now that they have been adopted. And this is not just what God is doing with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but verses 11 through 16 that we're about to read deal with consecration, which God mentioned in verses 1 and 2. And the point of consecration is also to demand that the people set themselves apart for himself. He is particular about consecration because he is serious about adopting his people all the way into his family. Second point, if you're taking notes, Jesus saves us 
out of spiritual death into spiritual life. Jesus saves us out of spiritual death into spiritual life. The Passover symbolizes freedom from spiritual slavery. It symbolizes freedom from spiritual death. Consecration, which is about what Yahweh is about to codify, dedicates their new free lives to God. So God doesn't just set them free. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? He works the old, dead part of them out, but he also brings them into something, something that they can't attain on their own. It's not just about gaining neutrality morally. It's about being made new and given new life. Let's begin reading in verse 11. When Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to Yahweh all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem, and when in time to come your son says to you, what does this mean? Why do you redeem me with a lamb? You will answer him and say, by a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your excuse me, it shall be as a mark on your hand, or as frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. So God has rules for how to set apart flocks of animals. He doesn't just want the lives of his people to be marked by his presence. He is asking that even their resources be significantly impacted by the fact that they belong to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. He has rules for how to redeem clean animals, the way that that happens. The first time a female animal of a clean herd type, which would be like a goat or a sheep or cattle, when they have a firstborn whatever, calf or, or kid or whatever, that that has to be sacrificed to God to demonstrate that the first fruits belong to the Lord and to work as a blessing over the life of that female animal so that the rest of her animals who are born will be healthy. In the life of a donkey, it may seem arbitrary to you that God picks a donkey. A donkey is an unclean animal that God's people can touch. So that's kind of sits in this weird overlap of the Venn diagram between clean and unclean animals. So God is saying, you don't necessarily need to kill every donkey that's firstborn. But if you choose to keep the donkey, to use the donkey as a pack animal, as an animal that you ride, then you'll need to offer a lamb in its place. But there's no loophole here for you because God knows human hearts. He knows the ways that we try to scheme to get around his rules. He says, if you refuse to redeem the donkey, just go on and break its neck. That would be better. And then the next donkey that's born, you can keep and you can use. You ask yourself, why break its neck? I think, one, it's more humane. Two, if it's an unclean animal, finding a way to end its life without getting its blood on you is important ceremonially. If you get the blood of an unclean animal on you, there's all kinds of extra steps that you have to take before you can come back into the camp and be associated with the people again. But what's important is that there is a rule and a way to set apart children, human beings. And God doesn't totally overlap that with the donkey, which is good news for us. We don't have to break each other's necks, but we offer a lamb in our place, similar to the Passover. So not only are God's people going to observe the Passover annually, but for the other 364 days of the year between Passovers, anytime a newborn is born, the first child of a new family, that family will redeem the life of their family with lamb's blood. Again, an innocent death in their place to cover over their sin and their wickedness. Exodus 12 and 13 work together to shape the identity of God's people, not around their own actions, but around God's actions. 
they shape the identity of Israel not around the character of Israel and how great they might be and how much they think they deserve God's love, but they're shaped instead around God's character. And ultimately, God intends to shape his people around his own glory. That was the intent of God in Genesis 1 when he designed human beings, and he continues to reconcile people back to that same purpose, that we believe that when we give glory to God and we find ways to acknowledge and worship him in every facet of our lives, that is the happiest, most joyful, most successful version of human life that we can live. And what's so amazing about that, according to Jesus' teaching, is we can live a life like that without a lot of stuff, without a lot of money, without necessarily a ton of health in our bodies, without growing a massive family, without having a bunch of investments to pass down the line, our legacy can be simply that wherever we were, whatever circumstances we endured, we acknowledged God in the midst of it. And we saw that he was better and he was higher and he was worthy of worship than whatever it is that was clamoring for our attention down here on the ground. Now by passing from death to life, which is the experience of consecrating a newborn infant, The people of Israel experience a precursor to the transformation that Jesus offers to anybody who would be consecrated or set apart by him. Our salvation does not terminate on us, but it's meant to serve as a testimony to God's real power, his real love, and it invites anybody who hears the story of God's mercy to come into that same kind of mercy themselves. Again, this is why Moses tells the people, when your children ask you, why do we have to kill a bunch of lambs when babies and donkeys are born? Your answer is not, I don't know, it's important to your grandmother, so we're just going to deal with it. Your answer is, God brought me out of slavery. I was reconciled. I was redeemed. And I do this in response. I do it because God's important enough to me. I don't need to understand all the ins and outs. If God says do it, I'll do it because he saved my life. That's how important, that's how high and lifted up he is to me. The Apostle Paul highlights how you and I pass from death to life in Ephesians 2. I want you to watch for how Jesus fulfills the prototype of consecration of the firstborn in Exodus according to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses, and you were dead in your sins, the sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You can read that for the Israelites as being submitted to the Pharaoh and being submitted to the gods of Egypt. You were following a course that made logical sense, that had religious structure, and was leading you to destruction. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the desires of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. That is why the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, the Lamb's Blood, the consecration by the offering of a lamb, none of these things have any meaning unless God graciously chooses to accept them. They're not magic. There's not some old law in the cosmos where God has to be really careful so he doesn't accidentally interact with lamb's blood. He is choosing to allow you and I to participate in symbolism that teaches us about him, his will, his way, his character, his glory. It's for our benefit, not his. Yes, he wants to be near to us, so he gives us a system that allows propitiation to be effective. But for you and I, it's the details of that propitiation that teach us about his love and his mercy. And those kinds of lessons will come to the surface every week as we journey with, ex- with the uh, Israelites through the Exodus, through chapter 19. So for you and I, who have now been created in Christ Jesus, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, there is not a more consecrating experience than that. You don't need anybody to set you apart with a lamb's blood because now the blood of Jesus can set you apart and his blood is divine. 
it's not just an animal in your place temporarily, short term. It's eternal. It's perfect. It's a sacrifice made by him. And it doesn't get any holier than to embody the attributes of God himself by looking to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. We learn to live for Jesus from Jesus because he saves us out of spiritual death into spiritual life. Let's finish our reading in Exodus verse 17. We move out of an experience that's dealing with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We move out of an experience dealing with consecration laws, and now the narrative picks, pick, excuse me, picks back up, and Moses explains how God's people know where to go in the wilderness as they try to follow God's way. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, Yahweh, God, did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was a nearer or a shorter path. God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and choose to return to Egypt. So God knows that they are frail and fragile, that they are weak and easily turned back. Verse 18, excuse me, yeah. But God led the people around by way of the wilderness instead toward the Red Sea. So instead of going northeast, the people go southeast and they go really far south. In just a minute, I'm going to show you a map of the journey that they took. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt and then notice the language if you're in the ESV with me, equipped for battle. I'm going to push back on that interpretation and say to you in Hebrew, it reads better as in formation. So the Bible doesn't actually allude to equipment. It doesn't allude to training. They don't have swords on their hips. They aren't armored up. They're just marching in lines. And if you had to move a million and a half people anywhere, you'd probably put them in rank and file so that they don't step on each other and get mad at each other. So in formation is a better way to read that. Verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph, who is the man who brings the 70 people of Israel into Egypt initially, before the Exodus, at the end of Genesis, Joseph had made the sons of Israel, his brothers, swear to him, saying, God will surely visit you. And when he does, when he sets you free, you will carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sakath and encamped at Atham on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by both day and night. So they are really moving. They're marching at a brisk pace. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart and never left from before the people. Now, if you and I were to fly into the city of Ramses, which is probably close to Goshen, where the majority of God's people lived when they were set free, if we were to fly into Ramses and rent a car, we could drive from Ramses in the Nile Delta up along the coast to Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel, eventually the capital of the promised land. We could be there in 10 hours. That's how long it would take us. That's it. If we were to hike that distance, it's about a 149-hour hike. Uh, It would take us about two weeks, right, if we walk between 10 and 11 hours a day, which is a pretty good pace. Now, God's people are moving faster than that because they're moving by day and by night both. But we could be there in a week and a half to two weeks. Now, I want to show you what that looks like, okay? The distance... Between Ramses and Jerusalem, if you draw a straight line, that's the red arrow. That distance is about 480 miles. That's the distance you could drive in 10 hours. That's the distance that you could walk in about two weeks. But God knew that right there on the edge of that sea, all of these different civilizations lived and were established and had armor and had weapons and were ready for war. That's what he's talking about when he alludes to the Philistines. Instead of sending God's people into the mouth of their sort of waiting opponents to be beaten down further and destroyed, God chooses to take that dotted line path. And you follow it down southeast, and then it begins to come back up. It's it's interesting, that fork almost looks like the Cook Inlet to me. It's very interesting how that whole Sinai Peninsula is very similar to Anchorage in geography, if you turned it 90 degrees. 
you make it up to that loop, and that loop is where they walk for 40 years because they've done things really poorly and God's not going to let them into the promised land yet. And then eventually they make their way up, and they do come back around to the southwest and land in the Jerusalem area by way of Jericho. Now, why would God do that? Okay, he makes a logical appeal, right? His people are weak. They're not going to be able to survive the war that's coming for them. Well, eventually they're going to go to war. In just a couple chapters, they're going to face battle anyway. The point, I think, is not how long or how short this process takes. The point is that God has a better way for them than the way that makes logical sense. The most important piece of this is the very end of the very last verse in chapter 13, that God was in the pillar of fire, he was in the pillar of cloud, and he did not depart from before them. He stayed out in front of them where they could see him. He stayed close to them. He's not in their midst quite yet. They don't have a tabernacle so they can survive that process. He still has to be a ways out, but he's close. In Jesus, that foreshadowing reaches its fruition, and Jesus doesn't just dwell in our midst corporately. He dwells in us individually by the Spirit of God. So that's our last point today, that Jesus will never leave us. God shows his intent. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden before sin. God was near to Noah. He was near to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He introduces himself to Moses personally. Every stage of God's covenant that develops, he gets closer and closer and closer to his people until finally, when Jesus dies on the cross, the curtain in the temple that separates the Holy of Holies from the rest of the earth is torn. It's torn from top to bottom, which means no person could do it because it's too high at the top to reach. And the Spirit of God is released and able to be among the people of the earth by way of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus will never leave us. What God does in part by leading his people with fire and cloud, Jesus does completely by living for us in our place, by dying for us in our place, and then inviting us into that new life to be transformed. And so we don't just fall in line behind Yahweh and follow him through the desert. We go in step with him. The Spirit of God indwells us now. We live radically different lives now with Jesus Because anybody can try to do good. Anybody can try to impress and follow the laws of their nation or the laws of their state, but only disciples of Jesus can do good according to God's divine law under the influence of God's spirit. Anybody can do their best to be responsible with their money and time, but only disciples of Jesus can give more than they think they can afford to give and still live with a spiritual surplus. Nobody in the world can teach you to do that. Anybody can be nice to their family members and friends, but only Jesus' followers can show genuine, vulnerable kindness to their enemies. And anyone can pick a religious system of good behavior and good rewards and try to build their life on that, but only Jesus' people can give without getting in return. Only Jesus' people can really, truly open their lives up to their neighbors. Only Jesus' people can actually cultivate new life in other people. Jesus commissions us to do those things because he is doing those things now. He did them with his physical body when he ministered in Israel, and he does them now through his spiritual body, which is you and I, those of us who've given our lives to him. Jesus consecrates us too. He sets us apart. And like ancient Egypt, he builds our identity around a meal together. We too gather to eat unleavened bread, but we do it not only as a memory of God's faithfulness to Israel in Egypt, but we do it as a memory of Jesus' faithfulness to humanity on the cross. We also drink a cup that represents thousands of years of God's patience with his people, choosing to count their faith as righteousness as they continue to consecrate each new generation with the blood of lambs. You and I find the fulfillment of that practice in Jesus' blood, drained from his body as a perfect sacrifice for our imperfection, death in the place of our death, freedom from slavery to our old master, which is our own inner darkness. In the same way that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the consecration of the firstborn shaped the identity of the Israelites, 
Communion, or what we call the Lord's Supper, shapes our identity as Christians. We are preparing to take communion today in just a few minutes. So we have a really cool opportunity to see a clear overlap between where we've been in God's word this morning and the practice of our faith. And we don't just remember the story of the cross, we reenact it when we break the unleavened bread and pour out the cup. We participate in the story of the cross and it becomes our story, our living reality. When we take communion, we collectively remind each other that we were bought by Jesus at the highest possible price that anybody's ever paid for anything. The life, the blood, the body of God himself. And so now we have died to sin. Now sin is not our master anymore. We have been called out of our own Egypt. And we no longer obey its voice, no matter how commanding it may sound. In communion, we remember the day that we were liberated. It is our feast of unleavened bread. It is our Passover so that we may live as God's children consecrated to him. Jesus said it this way in Luke 22. He said to his disciples, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I'll not do this again until the wedding feast is what Jesus is saying. And so he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. And he took bread And when he'd given thanks, he broke the bread and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So for you today in this room, if your life belongs to Jesus, if you are totally his, mind, body, and soul, then the table is open to you. You don't need to be a member of True North Church to participate in communion. If you are anything other than a disciple of Jesus, if that is not a category or label you are comfortable accepting, then we just ask that you abstain today, that you allow this to be a testimony to you, a demonstration to you, that we as a church at True North are bound together by, that the only thing we truly have in common is the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. So I will pray as I'm praying. The band will come back on the stage. They're going to lead us in one song, And you will have the duration of that song to come and take communion. So pray amongst yourselves, examine yourselves as Paul recommends in 1 Corinthians 11. See that you've settled anything that might be between you and another person and come with a clear conscience. Come under the blood of Jesus and participate in the table. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you, God, for all of the groundwork that you've laid. I hope that we are not people who are so simplistic that we, we care to overlook the history the meaning, the great legacy of your redemptive motion in all of life, God. You are not angry in the Old Testament and nice in the New Testament. You are not all wrath in the Old Testament and all mercy in the New Testament. You have and always have been and always will be the God who saves sinners from themselves. So we worship you for that. We honor you, God. We're here today because you've done that for us, and I ask that as we come to your table and participate now in this unifying and consecrating act, that we would realize that It's about you, not about us, and that at the table we find each other, regardless of our differences, our differences of perspective or opinion, even our convictions, God, we're able to be unified around the blood and the body of Jesus. We love you, we thank you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.